everybody, and welcome back to We've Got Mail. This is the podcast where you control the conversation right here at the Critically Acclaimed Network. My name is William Bibiani. I am a critic, and everybody calls me Bibbs. My name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a critic. And on this show, you can call me Rockmeister McCool. Yeah, enjoy it. And Get uh, your fill. How is Rockmeister McCool spelled? Every way. Any which way you want. It is... It, you could type in a series of 17 M's, and that is also correct. We will assume that says Rockmeister McCool. Mm. Uh, anyway, yeah, this is the podcast that Critically Acclaimed, where you write in and we answer your emails. The email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Uh, feel free to write to us about uh, episodes of our various podcasts, uh, movie stuff, TV stuff, anything at all, really. We're kind of open books. A lot of people want to talk to us about movie recommendations or things that are going on in the industry. Uh, but, yeah, this is your time. We don't like to dally, so let's mm -hmm. just jump right in. Whitney, who's our first email from? Our first email comes from David. Oh, hi, David. Hi, David. Hello, David. Thank you for writing in. Uh, hello, Bibbs and Rock My Stir Muck Yule. Nice. Uh, S-T-A-R Muck Yule. Uh, after seeing people on Twitter here in the UK shit on media studies as a subject. Uh, didn't know that was a thing. Yeah. I guess people in the UK shit on media studies as a subject. Yeah. I've decided to go back and rewatch the one movie I can think of that best dissects the role and importance of media in our lives. And of course, I am, of course, talking about Sidney Lumet's Network. Ah. Uh, while watching it, I came to the conclusion that this is probably my favorite screenplay of all time. Uh, obviously, there are standout moments like Peter Finch's I Met as Hellrand and Ned Beatty's boardroom scene. But this time around, I was struck by just how hilarious the movie is while being simultaneously so scathing in its examination of corporate media and our lives. The communist insurgents arguing about distribution rights to their show had me in hysterics. All this leads to a very simple question for you. What are your personal screen favorite screenplays of all time? Ah, that's a good question. Along with Network, some of my other personal favorites include Lady Bird, Francis Ha, uh, The Before Trilogy, Lost in Translation, Blazing Saddles, and All About Eve. Okay. Uh, thank you for reading. Hope you both have a great day, David. Uh, I love this question. Uh, when I was growing up and very interested in movies and how movies were made, I wasn't one of those people like Steven Spielberg who mm. made a lot of home movies in their backyard because we couldn't afford a movie camera. Yeah. Nowadays, everyone has one on their phone, and make everyone makes a big deal about, oh, you can make a movie on your phone. But, you know, you really have to go out of your way to try to actually learn the art of cinema rather mm -hmm. than just point your camera at yourself and make a vlog. Yeah. That's still cinema, but it's a different thing. Yeah. Uh, but in any case, uh, what I was able to study, because it was free, was screenwriting. So okay. what I would do is I would get screenwriting books out of the library, or we bought them if we mm -hmm. could. And I would bar, I would, uh, when the internet came out and people started putting screenplays online, which was initially quite a big deal I would study those mm -hmm. and then I ended up getting a degree in screenwriting so I studied screenwriting a lot and I think screenwriting is it's interesting it's everyone knows it's the backbone of most movies I mean mm -hmm. some movies are ad lib some movies are a different kind of animal some movies are documentaries but the majority of the movies that get really focused on in the media are fictional narratives that begin with a screenplay and then get built up. And that's kind of the spine or the skeletal structure on mm. which every other facet of your movie uh, is written. And there's a lot of books about the right and wrong ways to write a screenplay. Uh, and you can learn a lot from reading those books, but they all boil down to if it works, it works. Yeah, yeah. There, yeah. there's actually... There are good ways to write certain kinds of screenplays, yeah. uh, but... That's just what genre is. A genre yeah. is a series of expectations about mm -hmm. what you will see in this movie. Yeah, but there's no real right or wrong way to write a screenplay. Mm -hmm. um, 
from what I understand, uh, David Lynch had a lot of trouble getting Eraserhead made because the screenplay, I think, was like 12 pages long. Yeah, and they thought, oh, it's a 12-minute movie. It's like, it's a little longer than no, that. No, it's, it's a feature, but, but it's only 12, play, 12 pages. Yeah, when I make it, it'll be a feature. We don't understand because that's not the way a screenplay ordinarily looks. Yeah, and indeed, like a lot of things in the entertainment industry, a screenplay is often reduced to nuts, bolts, math, number of scenes, number of pages. Is it formatted the correct way? Mm. And if you want to sell a screenplay, you do have to know what the industry standard is because there are expectations of you. But if you tell a good story, it doesn't matter if you break what are the pre-established rules. However, you should know the pre-established rules so you know when you're breaking them and how to justify them and say, I did this for X, Y, and Z reasons. In any case, get back to the... Just like you do in in school. You have to learn how to write an essay properly before you can start playing playing with it and using your own personal colloquialisms. Exactly. Do a plain version first without a lot of your personality yet Mm -hmm. just to prove that you can, that you understand what that is. And then they'll give you a lot of leeway Mm -hmm. and you can play. And um, that's true with screenplays Mm -hmm. as well. Uh, so in any case, long story short, I've read a lot of screenplays. Okay. And the ones that are exquisitely structured, where every scene serves a purpose, usually more than one. Mm. Uh, the characters are distinct and well-defined and speak differently from one another. And they all have an arc that goes throughout the storyline, so no one feels extraneous. Mm. Uh the storylines make sense and are thrilling and have excellent pacing and know when to ramp up and slow down. A movie that nails every single aspect of that is rare. However, there are quite a few of them. So let's go through some movies that I think have perfect screenplays. Billy Wilder's The Apartment. Okay. You could probably pick a lot of Billy Wilder movies that have perfect screenplays. I think Sunset Boulevard is basically perfect. Ace in the Hole is basically perfect. The Apartment is wonderful because it has absolutely delightful characters, but it really puts them through the ringer. And even though the setup for the film is in some respects, very straightforward because of who the characters are and the way that they interact with one another, it ends up going in unpredictable directions. Mm. Uh, It's absolutely wonderful. It's great romance, but it's also incredibly sad and smart and funny. And it's uh, everything. Uh, Whitney, you going to give us another example here? No. Go back and forth? No? You don't? Okay, fine. I'll keep going. He didn't ask, like, an example of a perfect screenplay that was for your favorites. But that is my favorite. Oh, okay. For me, my favorite screenplays are typically perfect, or the ones that I think of, like, I don't see a flaw in that. So, for example, another screenplay that is one of my favorites, and I think that it is basically perfect, is Ed Wood. Okay. Now, Ed Wood takes a lot of liberties with the reality of what happened with Ed Wood uh, Mm. Jr. and Bela Lugosi, but as a script, in terms of, like, the way that it introduces storylines, the way that it takes characters who in real life were considered losers and makes them heroic without actually pretending that they did better than they did mm. um, is really admirable and impressive. And I think Scott Alexander and Larry Karzewski wrote a series of wonderful screenplays mm. that I think are absolutely wonderful and worth uh, uh, looking back on. My favorite screenplay ever is the screenplay to my favorite movie ever, but it's one of the reasons it's my favorite movie ever. Uh, it's Searching for Bobby Fischer, which is a story about a young chess prodigy uh and his dad who becomes uh at first is incredibly supportive of his son but then is more supportive of his son winning than he is actually of his son's personal development and growth Mm. and it's about how they start growing apart and that sounds kind of stodgy it's absolutely thrilling absolutely incredible the way that this uh, screenplay parcels out informations and turns little uh, interactions into absolute magic and mm. the way that every single character and every single line is natural but carries great importance um, and whether you read the screenplay or just watch the movie I think you'll pick up on that 
What about you? What are some? You gotta have some. Favorite uh, I'm, I'm tr- I was trying to find like a perfect quote from one of the the world's most perfect screenplays. Okay. I'm of legal age for whiskey voting and loving. Now the next election is two years away, and my love life ain't getting much better. So how about some of that one hundred percent? Uh, that's from <laughs> Faster Pussycat Kill Kill. Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah. Now that's a screenplay. Mm. That is one goddamn screenplay. I what I just you. gave you were these incredibly mm. structured screenplays. Faster Pussycat is the kind of screenplay that, like, only someone with a powerful personality could put together. Yeah, I, I, I like screenplays that speak their own language. Yeah. I, I actually don't really give too much of a damn about structure. Oh. I, I understand that... that uh, and the, the, to repeat the metaphor that I'm trying to coin and just will never catch on is that mm-hmm. a, a screenplay is like a clothesline uh, and that's holding up like a really elaborate quilt. You need a strong one to hold up the movie, but it's not what you came here to see. True. You came here to see the language. You came here to see tone. You came here to see characters. The story is the stronger the story, the better. But it's not the most important element. Well, it I would can argue sag that all, a little, and you can still get a lot of great things out of it. I would argue that a lot of those elements are built into the screenplay, but mm-hmm. it is up to the actors to make the dialogue exactly. live. It's up and, to and the, director the director to make chooses tone and yeah. pacing and a lot True. of a lot of things that are not explicitly in a screenplay. Well, that's one of the reasons why my favorite screenplays are my favorites is because mm-hmm. you read those screenplays and the movie is right there. Yeah, it's kind of hard to screw it up. But however, mm-hmm. there, you're you're right. There are a yeah. lot of wonderful screenplays that play so, out uh, in odd ways so yeah uh, Faster Pussycat Kill a Kill has a wonderful screenplay yeah. uh, watch the first 10 minutes of John Waters desperate living at some point mm. you're gonna want to memorize Mink Stoll's ranting the entire <laughs> opening of that movie is Mink Stoll is just in her house yelling at everybody I hate the Supreme Court. Tell your mother I hate her. Tell your mother I hate you. And, <laughs> like, I can just see John Waters as his typewriter going, tell your mother I hate you, and yeah. just having a wonderful time doing it. I'm really fond of Mystery Men. Uh, yeah, that, that's a wonderful screenplay. That, that movie's a bit of a mess. You can tell, like, they, they edited it you know, in a weird sort of way. If they well, left they, everything in, it would have been even kind of, like even more bloated than it kind of is. And the production design is almost willfully ugly. It's kind of yeah, weird. It's, it's just a weird production in a lot of ways. Like, it, it looks a lot like Batman and Robin, and not in a flattering way. And I, mm. I, and I don't think it's trying to send up Batman and Robin. It's just borrowing that type of aesthetic. That's just what superhero movies looked like in the 90s, yeah, for yeah, the most part, yeah. Uh, I, I think that movie might have actually been a lot stronger if it had maybe a smaller budget and they were working with, uh, they, they had like had to lean on the screenplay a little bit more. But it, there's just a lot of really good speeches and and uh, odd characters that get to say fun things in those. Movies. Have you seen the specials with I Thomas? I've seen the specials. Yeah, That's James a, Gunn wrote that one. James right? Gunn wrote yeah. it. Uh, it's a it's a movie very much like Mystery Man. If you like Mystery Man, if you mm. like the idea of a superhero movie where not a lot of superhero stuff happens, but the script is really strong. The specials is actually a really good example. Uh, it's a story of like the fourth or fifth best superhero team in the world on their day off. Yeah. And it's all they have to do today is they're going to like a press conference where they're unveiling their toy line, which for superheroes is like getting a star on the walk of fame. Mm. And, uh, it's very charming. It's a very charming movie. There's a lot of stuff in it. That's really clever and fun and plays with, uh, the superhero genre, but it does it incredibly cheaply. Mm, it's a, a very cheap movie, but it, it it doesn't need to be more expensive than that. You know, yeah. that's something that I think is a quality of a good screenplay is it knows what it is capable of, of 
of emerging as. Yeah. Like some screenplays, you write them and it's like, there's no way this will ever get made. It's too expensive. But if you know the format, if you know what you're getting at, like El Mariachi is a great screenplay because he knew how cheap that movie had to be. Mm. And he wrote around that. Yeah. And the original El Mariachi is still maintained as the best of those movies mm. just because it has this sort of low grade pureness to it. Yeah. Um, the, our listener wrote in and said that the Before Trilogy were some of his favorite screenplays. Wonderful screenplays. And, and uh, I, I also admire any screenplay that can get just natural human conversation down. Yeah. Or people talking for a long time about a single subject intelligently. Yeah. That usually gets me like kind of wrapped up in what's going on in the movie. Uh, yeah, and Linklater did that multiple times. It wasn't just the before movies. No, he also did it with uh, Waking Life, which is mm-hmm. a, a movie I adore. Yeah, uh, uh, movie. If you if you like the before movies, uh, see Southside with You. Yeah, which is very it's much. You can tell that they were inspired by Richard Linklater, but uh, it's a story of Barack Obama and Michelle Robinson's first date together, mm-hmm. and it, that's it. That's the whole thing. It's just them walking around, two incredibly intelligent people having a conversation about everything mm-hmm. going on in their lives and politics, and it's riveting. Yeah, it's absolutely riveting. It's a wonderful screenplay. There, there was a, a not so small part of me that wanted the final Avengers film to be a walk and talk. Oh, that with, with because cool. uh, in in the comics there was a character named Adam Warlock, and he was sort of like the the main protagonist of that mm-hmm. story, where he was the one who was facing off against Thanos, and Thanos was a nihilist, and he was sort of this spacey optimist who had like this big cosmic view of the universe and how life was the thing that was driving things forward. And I would love to have seen just a walk and talk film. Make it as long as you like. Make it yeah. another three and a half hour epic. But it's just the two of them discussing nihilism versus cosmic hope. Yeah, just trying to convince mm. Thanos to undo what he did. That yeah, would be great. That would have been great. It's kind of like there's a whole chapter like that in The Watchmen, mm. uh, which plays better in the comic than it does in the movie. But it's well, when that, that uh, movie's not very good. No, but it's when Silk Spectre is on Mars trying to tell Doctor Manhattan not to give up on humanity. Yeah. And it's really well written. Um, that's, that's a, that's a, that's a fun example. Someone brought up a thing. Um, I guess they revealed that the next Spider-Man movie is going to be called Spider-Man colon homesick. Yeah, uh, yeah. I guess they all have home in the title. Don't they, they do. Yeah. I don't know why they decided on that, but whatever. Uh, but someone made a joke, uh, about how, uh, oh, it's going to take place during COVID. We could shoot this this month. He's homesick. <laughs> so like, it's just, that would be a great Marvel movie. It's just Tom Holland in his apartment with Aunt May quarantining during this year and he's just calling up all the other Avengers on FaceTime. That'd be fine. I would love just That's a fun yeah. movie. I want to see that movie. You don't have to spend that much. It's okay to lowball it. <laughs> My favorite Spider-Man stories are the ones that are just him having a bad day. Yeah, it's not about it's, saving the world; it's just about nothing goes right that day. That's only it's really perfect. That's why Spider Man Two is the best movie. It's like, a, oh no, I'm Spider Man. This sucks. That's another great screenplay. My right my, my my costume runs in the wash. That what, kind of stuff. What superhero movie has the best screenplay? If you had to pick, well, I said Mystery Men, but okay, um, but like besides Mystery Men, like if you, besides, if you had to pick another one, other like, than Mystery Men yeah. and and the specials. Okay, um, what what is a good just a good screenplay? Yeah, top to bottom, good hmm. characters, good development. It's hard to yeah. say. I, well, I guess the original Superman has that. Like it, it's, it's so it's so bifurcated. It's, it's, it's really, though. Like really, the first half is so yeah. serious and the second half is so goofy. Yeah, just, I can't it, get it, it's it. really expansive though. Like it, it it 
I appreciate treat, that. treat Superman like he he has a big story and the movie mm. feels big as a result. I can deal with that. I think yeah. uh, Batman Returns has a really wonderful screenplay in the way that mm. actually, yeah, it's a lot of goofy, weird stuff. It's Batman. Of course there is. But well, they it's, actually... It's Tim Burton's Batman, so it's especially weird. But uh, they actually do a really exceptional job of making every single one of the major characters a distinct entity with their own problems and every mm. single aspect of whether they're superhero or supervillain stems from their baggage and yeah, the, the way that they all mirror each other is really smart. It's one of the few superhero movies to tackle directly the idea of duality mm. and come to some difficult conclusions about yeah. it. I really like that. Yeah. I, th- that's a good one. It yeah. feels a lot of those big, the problem with a lot of those bigger like blockbuster movies is uh, it's hard to see their screenplay because they do feel like, such a, a construct. Yeah. They feel like movies. Well, that's why Batman and Robins yeah. is the uh, Batman Returns. Sorry, is the outlier because it feels like the studio didn't want that movie. Yeah, yeah the studio yeah. definitely didn't want a movie that dour. It's just like, uh, oh, how do we market this shit? Well, there's one scene where the Batmobile flings like a frisbee out its side. It's like a, for a split second. That's what we got. Get your <laughs> bat disc lid on your soda Jack in the Box. Yeah, that was fun. Like, that's as far as they could go. They had no idea how to market that weird kinky fetish movie anyway we hope that's uh, you know that's that helps maybe give some stuff to watch but um yeah anyway um but there's a lot that goes into a lot of great screenplays and a lot of great screenplays are totally different from one another so what can you do okay let's move on uh here is a uh a letter from uh mark jack savage okay mark i think it's black jack savage well he's calling himself mark jack savage okay so are you a fan of black jack savage or is that your real name uh, Dear Bibbs and R.M. McCool, I've been meaning to write you for a while now to say thanks for introducing me to the great film It Happened One Night. Hmm. I've been diving into movies from the 1930s as money and time will allow. This last weekend I was able to watch pres- uh, the precisely mentioned movie again with my 92-year-old grandmother, and at the end she remarked, they don't, movies like- they don't make movies like that anymore. This led us to discussing many things about uh, that movie and other movies at the time. One of the biggest things I noticed in It Happened One Night is uh, there is not a score. And I didn't miss it not having one. Now, I love some iconic scores just as much as the next guy, but this was a nice change. So my question to you both, uh, go through all of the Best Picture, as you go through all the Best Picture nominees, is there anything you wish movies would do today Mm. or something that you're glad uh, we don't do anymore? Uh, And uh, being glad that movies are less racist is a cheap answer. We're all glad about that. That's (laughs) true. Sincerely, your patron, Mark Jack Savage. Okay, uh, so if you're not a patron, uh, Mm. you you may not know this, we have a podcast at our Patreon, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network, called Only the Best, where we are reviewing every single film ever nominated for Best Picture. We're about to finally exit the 1930s, and immersing yourself in the cinema of the 1930s, even if you're only looking at the Best Picture nominees, is really kind of refreshing because it was a very formative time for cinematic storytelling and you got Mm -hmm. to see genres evolve and take hold and uh, things like sound design start to go from extremely rudimentary to increasingly complicated and yeah a lot of early movies didn't have a lot of music or at least they didn't use music Mm -hmm. the same way we do today as this sort of constant uh, state of inflection where the music is telling the story along with everything. It's almost a drone. It's it's hard. Sometimes, to, yeah. You watch a lot of movies and it's, you know, the scenes where there's not scores almost stand out. Yeah. Um, but uh, that's a really good question because when you look at a lot of older movies, you see that a lot of things are done really differently. Mm. Sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse. Um, one thing that I think we have lost a lot of in our movies is efficiency. Uh, I think a lot of early movies were told much quicker. There's a lot Mm -hmm. of movies uh, from the 1930s and 40s that are 
70 minutes and <laughs> you they feel like feature films it feels like you've yeah, been yeah, yeah. on a whole like Frankenstein doesn't feel short Frankenstein is like 71 minutes long and it feels like you've just seen a really substantial full, yeah, film a full yeah. movie like there's nothing that is missing from it and mm. that's incredibly refreshing and exciting and I bet like a lot of movie theaters back when when slash if they ever open up properly again would love it because you can fit more movies into a day mm. so that would help uh, as well uh, Whitney what comes to mind uh, framing mm-hmm. framing uh, isn't a thing anymore at, at one point uh, cameras began to become uh, portable uh, there was a time when a steady cam was invented. It was this uh, a really simple camera rig that you strap over a camera person's uh, torso, and they're able to carry a gigantic camera and make these long moving shots while they're carrying the camera with them. Yeah. It revolutionized filmmaking. And we're not talking about like handheld, which can be a little jittery. These mm. the, the way the uh, steady cams work is uh, they actually keep the camera very level. Yeah, and so you get these so incredibly the, controlled floating the cam- shots. Yeah the, yeah, the the camera operator is like bouncing around and walking, but the camera is remaining steady. Hence the name steady cam. Exactly. Uh, which was was that. Sony did the steady. Who, I don't who remember. The I think the Panaglide came first, and then yeah. eventually became known as the Steadicam. No, the the Panaglide came second. Did I'm it really? pretty sure. Okay, yeah. all right. Well, anyways, it was around the late seventies. So that yeah. was uh, Bound for Glory was the first film to use a Steadicam. There you go. That's a piece of trivia on my brain. Uh, and, but you know, and that that made like certain shots really dynamic. But cameras were still really large and unwieldy for the most part. So you had to, uh, when you're shooting a, a scene a lot of filmmakers had to think a little bit more carefully about where they were putting the camera because they had to set up a shot, frame things correctly, light things correctly, and really think about composition. Even in, like, bad, cheap movies, Mm. you had to do that because the cameras were so large. Yeah. Uh, And cameras became smaller and smaller and smaller. Now you can shoot a a film on your phone. There are some films that have come out that were shot on iPhones. True. And... uh, the dominant aesthetic when digital cameras became prominent was all handheld. Every scene is handheld, even like casual scenes where people are talking to one another, the camera's sort of shaking around because it does get land a kind of dramatic immediacy to whatever scene you're shooting. Yeah, handheld can be very, very effective. But in going to that, we did lose that wonderful sense of lockdown aesthetics, composing a shot, figuring out where things exist within the frame in relation to one another. Yeah. That sort of thing is much less carefully handled. I mean, it's about getting the most out of your frame, too, yeah. because uh, before we had digital uh, film, film stock was finite. I mean, you could only fit so much in a camera at a time, and it was expensive, and you had to have it developed on top of that. And so as a result, you had to make your choices when it came to framing and uh, and so on. That's a really good point. One thing I miss that we don't seem to have a lot of anymore, and I'm trying to think of what the proper term would be for this... um, but uh, if you watch like old Hitchcock movies, for example, mm-hmm. oftentimes there'll be a lot of shots that are perfectly framed, mm-hmm. and then the characters will move around the scene, and the camera will move into another perfect frame, and then maybe into another one, yeah. rather than just cutting from shot to shot. And the idea is that you are kind of present in the scene in mm-hmm. a very controlled way. And that's something that I think that we often lose as well. I don't think there's a lot of filmmakers who care as much about framing in that way. There are definite exceptions. I think Denis Villeneuve is obsessed with framing. And I think that's something that's very... I think it's one of the reasons why people respond to his movies so much is that they feel very immaculate. Mm -hmm. Sometimes sterile, but 
that can be part well, of it well, too. Kubrick was the same way. Yeah, I was going to say Kubrick was often accused of being very sterile. I don't think it's a bad thing. No, no. Uh, really. But yeah, that he he was one of those just sort of master craftspeople mm. who could just put the camera down right where it needed to go. Yeah. Something Spielberg often said about Kubrick. Uh, I miss black and white. I mean, it's, it's not dead. We still occasionally get a black and white movie, but yeah, I think it's... Have seen The Lighthouse? Good it's God. true. The Lighthouse is one mm. of the most gorgeous movies of the last few years, but it's an aesthetic that used to be as common as color, if not more so, and I think that it's a wonderful option. It's interesting because if you think about it, if we had invented color film stock first, we might it might never have occurred to us to even try black and white. You know, yeah. because it creates. Yeah, it's entirely possible. The idea of a photograph it was supposed to like recreate what we saw rather than painting it or yeah. coming up with something more expressionistic. So, like, if we could have captured lifelike color, mm. it might not occur to us to do not lifelike color. At the very least, it might not have become a dominant aesthetic. Yeah. Uh, same thing with sound. You know, if sound had been able to be synchronized with cinema right from the beginning, there's certain storytelling techniques might not have taken hold. Like, the reason why we have musical scores next to movies, a lot of it evolved from silent movies where we're watching this movie and we got to have something going on for our ears. And so people would play music live a lot of the time or they play a music recording. Mm. And that carried over into sound cinema, something that was a part of the language that we could use and play with. And it became more prominent as time went on, as sound design was able to become more complicated. Mm. Um, so yeah, I'm trying to think of what else is, is that we, we kind of lost. That's a really yeah. good point, actually. Uh, and, and also just ba basic filmmaking things, you know, as mm. the, the language of film has evolved and you go back to watch these old movies, yeah. uh, you, you do notice how different the filmmaking was at the time. And, uh, I miss slow editing, for instance. Yeah. Uh, this this idea that you could hold on a shot for a long time and people could enter and exit the room and you just have, sort of have conversations and the camera would just sort of tilt back and forth. Maybe yeah. there'd be an editor to, to a close-up or a shot, reverse shot of a conversation. But if you start to no like force yourself to notice edits in a modern film, you'll begin to notice that a lot of them aren't really necessary. Yeah. Uh, there a lot was of a it is really, just about keeping pace. Yeah, there was a really yeah. notorious scene that was making the rounds when Bohemian Rhapsody came oh, out. Oh, this fucking scene. It's, there's a, it's just a lunch scene where a bunch of guys are sitting around a table having a conversation, but it is, it violates all known established rules of how, what good editing is supposed to look like yeah. and not in a creative sort of way. No, 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 because editing, here's the thing with editing. A lot of editing is just keeping the events of a scene clear, making mm. sure Spatial that it's, continuity. Yeah, making yeah. sure it's clear who is where at any given time, who is talking to who. If someone is looking towards the left side of the screen, they will consistently talk towards the left side of the screen. And mm. if that shifts, it shifts significantly enough that it's not confusing why are they looking to no, the other or, side or there's, there, there's like a, if there's a hard edit uh, it's sort of like reestablishing time has passed within the scene yeah. that sort of thing but if you look at this scene from Bohemian Rhapsody that made the rounds and it's just the bit where Aiden Gillen comes in and says hey queen uh, you got some cool stuff going I want to be your manager it's just awkwardly presented. Mm. And no, nobody's facing each other. No. Nobody's in the same Every, scene with it. They're all like, they all seem to be in separate scenes. Like they couldn't yeah. get the actors together all at the same and, time. And that might've been the way it was constructed. That was a legendarily troubled production. Mm. And um, I suspect the reason that it won best editing at the Academy Awards isn't because the editing was good. The editing sucks. I suspect it's because the movie worked at all. It, it was it was at least consistent. Yeah. At, that, at the end of all of that, it was consistent. Yeah. 
Uh, so yeah, I think I think what we're kind of getting at between both of us is this sense of control. Mm. The idea that a movie is being made precisely rather than just shot at, at whatever angles we can get and then found in an editing room. Mm. I think that's something that older movies had to do for a lot of practical reasons well, and, and uh, uh, I think it it it's it led to a different aesthetic. It's almost a more mature aesthetic in some respects. Yeah. Uh, but I, I know a lot of like modern blockbusters are need to be planned out well in advance because there's so many special effects now, and they're yeah. only only shooting certain actors at a certain time against a green screen, mm-hmm. and they essentially have to uh, choreograph a camera that doesn't exist anymore. They're animating all of it. Yeah. There's not even a camera, but. When there's no camera, you'd think they'd be able to construct a shot however they wanted, but they have to make sure it still has that very immediate movement. Mm-hmm. And yet at the same time, because of the way aesthetics have evolved, it feels like they're still finding it ed- in editing, even though they've really carefully constructed a lot of these shots. When you look at a lot of animated movies, I think you see mm-hmm. like um, some animated movies feel very specific. Like if you look at like the Iron Giant, it's very well yeah. framed. It's very... Because uh, they're drawing. Uh, it's, yeah. It, yeah, exactly. And then you look at something like... I don't know, I'm trying to think of an example. Like, Onward just looks like any other movie, and nothing really feels, like, particularly striking in its no. presentation. Occasionally get a great shot, but, like, it doesn't feel like we had all the time in the world to get every single thing about this correct. It feels like mm. we just shot it like any other film. Yeah. Um, so, anyway, that, that's a good question, though, and I think if you watch older movies and you really pay attention to just how the different cinematic language... Uh, um, has evolved in the years since there's mm-hmm. a lot that we miss yeah yeah <laughs> and there's a lot of good things too uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. just sort of the, the amount of information in a frame can be a good way to tell a story yeah. uh the, that cameraless filmmaking which yeah. is what we're moving toward where eventually we'll not have cameras they'll just all be animated uh, uh, i don't know how true that is i think there'll mm. always be a place for actually capturing real life you know i remember having a conversation when richard linklater announced his his big new film project merrily we roll along yeah yeah it's gonna be filmed over decades filmed over like 25 years or something he's gonna be an old man by the time it's done yeah and uh i hope hope he's found a second like if i die someone else can like Paul thomas anderson get get michael apton on on the case yeah Uh, exactly he was the one who picked up the uh the up movies but uh I'm wondering, you know, as the special effects continue to evolve and people's screens become uh, more pervasive and that sort of crisp, false-looking di- digital image becomes more and more cr- uh, convincing and more mm. real, will the kind of truth he's trying to get, will that cinematic verisimilitude, if you will, be something we even value anymore by the time he's done? I hope there will always be a place for different kinds of film yeah. and filmmaking. Yeah. I hope that much, at least. Fingers crossed. Yeah. I, I think there will always be uh, filmmakers, whether they're outliers or not, who are interested in doing doing it the real way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm reminded of uh, something David... I think David Cronenberg said this. Mm. Uh, he said that he was interested in moving into digital photography, and he loved new digital toys. He was always a tech head, uh, which is a little odd because he watches movies, and they tend to be really, like, tech light Mm-hmm. They're not really sort of like sparkly. They're really terse and stripped down and minimalist. Oftentimes. Uh, but uh, he said that older filmmakers were moving toward these sort of new digital toys because they're interested in trying new kinds of filmmaking. Yeah. This is a new tool in the toolbox. They're finally streamlining something that was previously very, very difficult for them. Yeah, exactly. Like it, they're, uh, they're looking at the it as a tool and like, oh, it's easier now 
than it ever was before yeah, no, to I don't do this have, thing I wanted to do. We don't have to you know, develop dailies and go to a theater and watch something we shot two days after the fact. Yeah, there's no mystique yeah. for them. They've been doing that their entire yeah, careers. Yeah, they and, can, they can yeah. shoot something digitally, look at the take, and just do it again if they want to, and that's mm. a lot more appealing for an older filmmaker who's worked with an older system that was too slow for them. Whereas I know a lot of younger yeah. filmmakers, younger people interested yeah. in film, to whom that seems magic yeah, compared to this, what we this have kind of, now. Well, you know? I, I, now I learned about film watching these old films, so I want to use these older tools and these older techniques. Yeah. And I, I thought that was a very interesting contrast, but yeah. that's a little off topic. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, thank you. For that. I, I remember yeah. on that point in film school, uh, when I was in film school, we still they still taught us to edit on flatbeds. Oh, nice. Okay. Where you would you would like, like the actual bench? Yeah. yeah, you're on a bench. There's a bunch of like different spools, and you're looking at it shot by shot, something frame by frame. You're using dials, and the ju- and we had computers. We had Final mm-hmm. Cut Pro or, or Adobe Adobe and all these kind of things. And the argument was, I think part of the argument was, listen, we pay for these things, we got to use them. <laughs> but the other argument, which is very, very true, is when you have to make cuts by hand, you're gonna think about those cuts. You a think about better, those yeah. cuts because if you fuck up, you have to put it back together by hand. Mm. You have to make confident choices because if you just futz around in Final Cut, you can just do anything all the time and luck into something. So what you want to do is be able to know what you're doing, why you're doing it, do it right the first time. Yeah, That's yeah. what you should be training yourself to do as much as possible. So um, I, the, even no. just that has value. Yeah. Indeed, indeed. All right, moving on. Uh, here's a letter from Johnny K. Hi, Hi Johnny, Johnny K. K. Uh, dearest William, the conqueror of all, and Whitney, the rock my stir of most cool things. Fair enough. Well, I don't get all cool things. <laughs> no, there's some, there's some... There's some cool things I'll let. There's some things that are just out of your jurisdiction, Whitney. It's true. I just don't understand some cool things. Mm -hmm. Uh, Huge fan of everything you do. (laughs) You guys are brilliant, and I'd like to thank you for keeping me so entertained and locked down. Uh, You great people, you. Oh, oh, That's very kind of you. Thank you for saying so. However, I'd like to pick up something which recently bothered me in a film, a film called A Fish Called Wanda. Ah! Uh, I know that a lot of people have classified this as a brilliant comedy, and I do see the appeal. I did laugh a fair bit, especially whenever Kevin Klein was on screen. He really earned that Oscar. I wish the Academy Award would reward would reward more performances which are non-showy and comedic. Yeah, he's amazing in that yeah. film. What, what am I, he, he gives one of my favorite line readings of ever of, in all film history. Which one? one? Where he's trying to apologize and he can't say it. And he's practicing <laughs> in the car. And he just says, I'm very, very... Fuck you! <laughs> Like he, he can't even say the word sorry. It just devolves into vulgarity. It's really wonderful. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, however, I really found the Michael Palin scenes uncomfortable. For any listeners who haven't seen the film, he has a bad stammer and repeatedly can't get any key words out, which is played for comedy as the characters around him try to get information. I myself have a stammer, mm. and although I've done all I can, I, I can do to not let it define me or stop me achieving what I want, I'd be lying if I said it hasn't effect, affected my confidence in life. As a result, I find it unpleasant when characters in films have speech impediments, which are played for humor. Uh, and that's that was really common when I was growing up yeah, too. It was, like yeah. in any eighties movie, well, cartoons, like cartoons, too, yeah. a lot of cartoons. Like yeah. Mel Blanc, you know, put that into the the comedic stereotype mm-hmm. uh, several scenes starring Palin are to me simply a repeated joke of he is disabled so cannot communicate well isn't that funny which to me sits very badly I know this is not the first time that Monty, the Monty Python troupe has 
gone down this route. The whole Willis Wadger sequence from The Life of Brian springs to mind, and maybe mm. I'm letting this film get to me too much, but I feel comedies seem uh, to feel that certain disabilities are fine to mock. Communication can be hard, and I wish that that was portrayed kindly or empathetically in Hollywood films. Is this something you have thoughts about? Are there any films you have feel portrayed speech impediments in a more positive way? I know most people jump to the King's speech. Yep. <laughs> that's the... Yeah. That's the that's the most obvious yeah. example. Unfortunately, my life isn't normally facing Rocky-style challenges with a coach, just more <laughs> trying to ensure I'm confident enough to do anything I need to do. Sending you both quarantine-full love, Johnny K. Um, well, you've listened to us talk, and we, you know, we do not have speech impediments, uh, so... No. Well, we can't speak to this from experience, but no, uh, like the good, but but you know, the idea that something that you experience in your real life yeah. is fodder in movies for mockery, not yeah. just humor, because we can all handle a little humor, but mockery, uh, is I'm sure something that everyone is familiar with on some level. Look, I'm a I'm a fat guy, yeah. all right. I'm I am not thin, uh, and I'm fine with that, and I I that's fine, but. Yeah. It pisses me off when so many movies use a character who is not thin as an easy punching bag. Yeah. And the movie that comes to mind most often for this Mm. is uh, Star Wars. Star Wars, A New Hope, when at the end, when they're having that big run on the Death Star, we meet a character who only exists to be fat and be named Porkins and then die. And then, of course... We run into another he, he, character. Least, who, he's not a comedic stereotype other than his name. But that's all he is. That's, that's the only is, joke yeah. is that he is named Porkins yeah. and then he dies. I, I, I would say I've, I've seen worse. Like there, there was a, there's an worse. even worse movie where the, like he's like, like his face is all messy because he's overeating in the oh, cockpit and of we, the ship or and something. And we've all yeah. seen those, those characters in movies where, yeah. oh, this person isn't a thin person. So we will see them constantly eating food as if that's funny. Like, I don't get the joke. Mm. It's rude. It is cruel. And there is still this attitude that people who are, whether you prefer the term fat or overweight or large or whatever you want to call it, um, that they, it's okay to make fun of them yeah. because we think that they could just go to the gym and solve all their problems. And that's not specifically mm. true. And it's fucking annoying how often that becomes just a gag and i have internalized a lot of that negativity mm. throughout a lot of my life and it pisses me off it doesn't it, it never like makes me want to lose weight it just makes me feel bad and be angry at people who think that other people are not worth dignity yeah and that yeah. pisses me off so I, I again i don't have a speech impediment but there are other things that are mm. that Hollywood and the entertainment industry punch downward a lot. Yeah, I've I've been really, uh, and this doesn't have anything to do with this uh, speech impediments. But if you sort of follow film history, it's been fascinating to see Hollywood kind of choose which groups are still okay to mock. Yeah, because uh, they they yeah. don't they, for some reason it's like. Listen, okay, fine. We won't make fun of these people, but it's still okay to make fun of yeah. these people. What if it's not okay to just mock an entire group of people yeah, for something a, they have no control over? I, I lived through, uh, like, in the 1980s, all the way through the, like, late 80s, uh, I lived through this entire wave of films that made fun of Asian people. Like, yeah. Asian stereotypes were really... Pre- look at the Police Academy movies, for oh, yeah. instance. Films like that. 
And uh, just one cliche after yeah, another. Yeah. After a while, Hollywood said, "Oh golly, that was really racist. Let's cool it a bit. Let's make fun of Indian people instead." And for a while, there were all these Indian stereotypes that just suddenly come started coming into like TV ads. Yeah, it's like why why is that now okay to start mocking this group? Because did you, the, because didn't you learn anything? It's lazy humor. Yeah, it is lazy yeah. humor. It is racist humor, and it's all kinds. I mean, it's ableist humor sometimes. Mm. It's homophobic humor. And it's frustrating because I think some people, because they were raised with this kind of humor, think that no other kind of humor exists. And if we ruined or, our ability yeah. to, if we took away a comedian's ability to bully people, hmm. that somehow humor would be gone from our lives forever. Yeah. And that's not true. That's just not true. There's all kinds of humor out there that isn't like specifically designed to make people feel bad about themselves. And I will say this. I recently we watched A Fish Called Wanda. And it, yeah, it bugged me too, actually. It's it's a cheap, it's, it's, bad joke. Uh, it's not just that, you know, it, it, there's a plot point near the end of that movie where he can't communicate something and that, that would be like a, a point of tension. Yeah. Uh, but... The characters are really cruel to the Michael Palin yeah. character. and they're cruel about mm. this thing that he has no control over. Mm. And again, I get some of them are villains, etc. But well, he's a villain. He kills dogs in that movie. But, you know, you choose... Okay, yeah, okay, there are bad people, mm. and they might do bad things in your movie, but you choose what you think is okay to put in the content yeah. that you make, whether it's a, a movie or a radio drama or a TV show or a painting or whatever, you choose what you are allowing to normalize. Mm. You choose what you want to put in something that you're making mm. and what you think is okay to be fodder for humor, mockery, negativity, uh, stereotyping, and, you know, sometimes people do this subconsciously, but this is the, one of the reasons why we keep talking about it, because we need to stop this shit. Yeah, it's yeah. not worth it. It just makes people no. feel bad about themselves, and mm. it sucks. The, the, it the, sucks. The flip side of that is, if I find a film that uh, implicates or mocks me personally, something about me, I kind of love that. I have a weird uh, weird masochistic streak in me, I suppose. I'm not, but, saying, uh, that, I'm not saying that to, people to a... can't have humor poked at them, mm. but like, there's, there's a line, and there's, yeah. at some point you do become a bully. Yeah, well, yeah. And, and you know, be, being made to feel like shit is one of like the more exhilarating things I get from movies. But okay, I but that's not a decision you I've, can make for everybody. I, no, that's that's my personal taste, and I yeah. framed it that way. Uh, yeah. uh, to get to the second part of your letter, films that uh, positively uh, depict speech impediments or d- depict speech impediments as something other than a sign of of mockery, weakness, or villainy. Because I've, yeah. I've seen movies about. Villains that have speech impediments. Uh, the King's Speech comes to mind. Yeah, which, which or, or, or not, not the King's Speech. The, uh, the King, the Kingsman. Excuse me. Oh yeah. Uh, the villain played by Samuel L. Jackson has a lisp in that movie. Yeah, and that's made to make him look kind of silly and also indicate that he's a villain. But uh, there was a really good film from the mid two thousands called Rocket Science. Oh, uh, I didn't see a, this. It was an Anna Kendrick film, one of her early, her first ones. She was still okay. a teenager. Uh, about a young boy who has a teenage boy who has a, a speech impediment. He has a stammer and he is picked out by sort of the, the school's queen bee on the debate team under the, uh, the assumption that she's going to teach him to be a better debater. And in being more confident, he would be able to just sort of uh, be able to believe with his stammer a little bit better and communicate a lot better. Mm. Uh, and of course it turns out she was just doing it to mock him. That was the, sort of the point of that movie. He has to come to strength on his own. But uh, yeah, it's his stammer is not played for laughs. It's played for like awkward humor because he feels really awkward about it. But I think that's very true. That's not mocking him. Mm. Um, 
Have you ever seen I, Claudius? You know, I've never seen I, Claudius. I, Claudius is really wonderful. Uh, Derek, the old uh, BBC miniseries uh, where Derek Jacobi plays Emperor Claudius from uh, from the Roman times. And he was uh, he was uh, one of the few decent Caesars, you know, mm. a- among the, the Caesar, like among uh, like Nero and Caligula, we had Claudius and Claudius was openly mocked because he was uh, physically disabled and he also had a stammer. And a big part of that uh, that miniseries and a big part of Roman culture was actually your skill as an orator. Yeah. Uh, oratory was very highly valued in ancient Roman times. You know, you could get out on the floor of a Senate, make a really impassioned, well-reasoned speech and speak very clearly and efficiently. And that would mean that would be a sign of your intelligence. Mm. You step up and you start to stammer. You're seen as dumb. And this is uh, an entire and even by the way about, even yeah. the word dumb is ableist if you think about indeed it, that's yeah exactly, yeah it's exactly yeah. what that means and we, should, in fact. we should probably try to not throw that one uh, around as freely as we did fair fair yeah. fair thank you for calling me out um but uh by the end by the time we get to the end of that miniseries he get, does give a good speech it's like it it should be the quality of what you say and not how long it takes you to say it yeah he's actually flying in the face of a lot of roman culture so yeah i claudius is a good example okay that's a good one um there i know of a lot of films where like about speech therapy for instance mm. um what was the name of the the kirk douglas film where he's oh. that, that he made after he had had his stroke and it's about yeah, yeah, yeah. A, a man who was, had suffered a was stroke it, it runs in the family is that it no, no. not that one um but but his son was in it. Uh, I'll, Michael, I'll, Michael Douglas was I'll, also. I'll, I'll I'll look that up. I'll I think look that, that one up. was called like Diamonds or something because they're like. Oh, diamonds. I think yeah. it, it didn't have like uh, um, Jenny something. Jenny, in it. Jenny Jenny something. Yeah, Jenny on. McCarthy. Jenny, I think it's Jenny McCarthy. Uh, diamonds, Kirk. Doug, yeah. yeah, Diamonds. Okay, Diamonds. Yeah, that, yeah. that one is. But that uh, yeah, there's uh, scenes in that movie where yeah. he's doing the speech therapy and Dan yeah, Aykroyd, Lauren Bacall, Jenny McCarthy. Yeah, 1999. There you go. Yeah, the, there, there's there's another one. Um, but again, that's not about someone who's living with a speech impediment. That's about specifically about speech therapy. Mm. But I guess he does have an impediment because he suffered a stroke. Yeah, I mean, you mm. know. Um, so anyway, um, but that's a really good point. If anyone knows of any other examples of movies that handle uh, uh, characters with speech impediments in mm. a positive way, as opposed to uh, mm. as an opportunity for mockery, mm. uh, which I think we can all agree is bullshit. Um uh, please let us know. Yeah. If we, by all means, tweet us at Critic Acclaim. Yeah. We would love to hear about it because yeah. there aren't enough, I think. Yeah, there, there's a lot that. of people that we just don't make movies about, and mm. it's bullshit, and we need to stop that. Yeah. 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 Uh, let me find another letter here. Um, this one comes from Jay Curty. Hello, Jay Curty. Uh, hello. hello, Mr. Beast and Rockmeister Mr. Rock. <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> Um, I, I don't want to rabbit trail too much uh, for your fans who don't follow the movie Trivia Schmodown ah. or spoil any matches uh, for those who do and maybe aren't caught up. But I wanted to say that uh, both of you are absolutely rad. Oh, Bids thanks. on Shazam with Brendan Meyer and Whitney on Deep 13 with Alonzo Duralde. Schmodown politics being what they are, tumultuous and ever dramatic. I really hope both of you can stick with your team partners next season. I think both of your teams are awesome to watch, potential championship level, and you guys are great for the league. Shazam versus Deep 13 would be a dream match for me as a viewer. Oh. Not sure how you feel about that. We came are so close. Are you asking close. a question? You came so, we came so close this month, too. Like, it yeah. would have happened. <laughs> Except I keep blowing it. Anyway, oh, uh, as for as for a question, can 
Can you think of a time in a Schmodown competition mm. when you guys were able to answer a question correctly because you had just learned the answer very recently before? Ah. You guys teach me things all the time about a, a film that seems to pop in right afterwards in matches, and I'd wondered if you'd had shared that experience. Keep it up, you titans of trivia, you masters of movie knowledge, <laughs> <laughs> you kings of New England. I was about uh, to say. Yeah. <laughs> Love the shows. Take care, Jay Curti. Thank you so much. Um, if, again, if anyone doesn't watch the movie trivia Schmodown, it's an online movie trivia competition. It's half game show, half wrestling show with like mm. you know dramatic storylines and such. And Whitney and I played on a team called Critically Acclaimed for a couple of years, and then we had this storyline where we broke up and we both found <laughs> other teammates, and that was a lot of fun. Yeah, um, a little bit, a uh, little bit under the hood. A lot of that stage. <laughs> I hate to break it to you because Whitney and I are still friends and we do this podcast. It's actually bad branding if you think about it to stop being critically acclaimed uh, uh, team. But whatever, it's it's fun and I I, I really like playing with my partner and I know you like uh, being able to hang out with Alonzo Duralde and even when you're on a team with uh, Mark Hoyk, we're good friends with Mark Hoyk and yeah, it's just nice I mean, to hang out with him. Um, I, I'm I'm so intimidated by Alonzo. Just, yeah, he, still. Well, After just all these years, just, just as a person, he's just such a, a great—not just a great critic, but a good man. And I, it's, yeah, he's, I, he's, I feel like I don't deserve to play with somebody like Alonso. Okay, like well, he deserves a better partner. than Well, me. you need to give Alonso more credit then, because if Alonso thinks you're someone who is mm. worth, you know, partnering up with, then mm. that means that if you respect Alonso that much, it means you have to respect his taste, which means you have to like yourself more. Oh, I love myself too much. I need to. I need to hate myself more. I no, need, stop that. Stop more, that. More, please, more criticism, please. please. But then, but uh, but yeah. So um, yeah. So this year has been kind of weird because we used to uh, shoot all of those uh, uh, games in a studio and like a proper studio environment with an audience and desks and camera crews and such. And uh, because of the pandemic, we've started doing a lot of these things virtually, and we're only kind of just now starting to really pick up the pace. And do more episodes again. So Whitney had a big teams match with Alonzo Duralde mm. versus a team called Final Exam, which consists of Paul Oyama, very, very, like in real life, very nice, super intelligent young player who knows like way more uh-huh. about movies at his age than I did at his age. Like I'm very impressed by yeah, him. Yeah, yeah. And his partner is Lon Harris, who... I keep, you know, like in Hamilton, where they he keeps running into Aaron Burr accidentally. <laughs> That's like me and Lon, like one day Lon Harris is going to kill me, and it's, it's the way it's going to work because um, I went to school with Lon Harris's brother, and then I ended up <laughs> after school. One of the first jobs I got after film school was at a video store in Los Angeles, which is sadly no longer in existence, called Laser Blazer, and Lon was one of my bosses. Oh my goodness! And then, and he was—he was one of the nicer people there. Like he was just cool, and he introduced me to movies that I still love today. Um, and uh, then a few years later, we just met by happenstance because we happened to get involved in like the online film criticism and you know producing world. Mm. And now we're like playing this same competition together, and it's really weird. But I have a lot of respect for Lon, and he's wonderful. But um. Yeah, it's fun to play. It's uh, fun to be a part of storylines. And uh, I think Whitney is exceptionally good at this. Occasionally, I wish he knew the rules a little better because then he'd be one of the best. <laughs> but um, what can you do? Yeah. Um, uh, as, but to address your question about uh, did you ever like come upon a question that you had just looked up? Yeah. Um, I was in a Star Trek exhibition match. Mm-hmm. 
And I figured, like, I'm going to go on a Star Trek exhibition match. I should probably bone up on the Star Trek movies that I don't know as well. And that yeah. would be the Kelvin movies. I didn't watch those yeah. as much as I've seen the original yeah. uh, the original six. Well, they're newer. It makes ten. sense. Yeah. Original ten, I suppose. And uh, so, yeah, the, the one I'd only seen, like, once at that point was Star Trek Beyond. It was the yep. latest one. So I decided to sit and watch Star Trek Beyond. And I watched that movie. The next day maybe a quarter of the questions were specifically about Star Trek Beyond. Well, there you it's go. Like, oh, well, I'm glad I boned up then. Yeah. It's like, what was the name of that big space station? Do you remember that big sort of ring-constructed space oh, yeah. station, it, city it, in space it thing? It was like... Um, it was a really commonplace kind of name. Was it so. like the, the Harrisburg or something like it, that? It was called the Yorktown. The Yorktown. Yeah, I knew it was like some yeah. like old colonial America name or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's cool. Uh, that's something I probably wouldn't have been able to recall if I hadn't just watched the movie the night yeah, before. Yeah, it's, it's important to study for mm-hmm. these things. Um, now that, that That's easy to do, though, because yeah, that was dealing literally with just 13 feature films. Yeah. That's, that's a really easy, easy realm to sort of study up on. Yeah. Um, I recently had a question about a Clint Eastwood movie, which was uh, In What City Does Mystic River Take Place? And I was literally just... The way I study for the Schmodown is when I think of a movie... Uh-huh. And I just do like off the top of my head just randomly throughout the day. I ask myself a couple of quick questions about it. Like, do I remember who starred in that movie? Do I remember who directed that mm-hmm. movie? Do I remember the basic plot of that movie? Is there anything particularly trivia worthy about that film? Like, what was the MacGuffin in Ronin? That kind of thing. Uh, and if I don't know the answer right off the top of my head, I look it up. And so uh, one of the questions was, uh, where does Mystic River take place? And mm-hmm. I was like thinking about... Mr. River and I was like okay who's in that movie Sean Penn's in that movie Tim Robbins won an Oscar for that movie who else was nominated for an Oscar mm. for that movie Marsha Gay Harden was nominated for an Oscar for that movie <laughs> who played Sean Penn's daughter that was uh, Emmy Rossum Emmy Rossum yep thank you God, <laughs> took me a second. I almost said Emma Roberts but right. Emmy Rossum and then it was like where does that thing take place pretty sure that's Boston look it up Boston boom came up a couple of days later uh, so you never know and um, it's weird actually sometimes it's like hyper specific. I was once in a match. There was an event at the Schmodown called Anarchy, in which all of the teams had to break up and switch partners, <laughs> which was a lot of fun. Yeah, it, yeah. it killed critically acclaimed's momentum for like the third time, which was frustrating. But it was fun to just sort of randomly get assigned new partners. And um, one of the the questions we had when my team with Matt Nost was, "What is Cher's full name in the movie Clueless?" And I was very specifically having a conversation about the movie Clueless with someone before the match, like half an hour before the match. We just happened to be talking about Clueless because it's a famous movie. Mm. And we were talking about it and we were mentioning, and I remember because we were having this conversation that Cher's last name was Horowitz. And unfortunately, that was not my question to answer. So oh, I knew no. it, but we couldn't get any points for it because oh, it was only bad. his and he just he couldn't pull it because yeah. it's a little specific. I get it. But I was like, no, we were so close. Dang it. <laughs> um, you know, it's a test of your knowledge and sometimes things are fresh. Sometimes things are gone mm. and uh, you do your best. But uh, anyway, thank you for watching. Um, I have a match coming up Friday. If anyone's interested, it's going to be between me uh, and the kid and uh, who's the boss. All I can uh, say is there will be blood. There, uh, there, there might be questions about that film. <laughs>
We're, we're out of character now, so we don't have, we're, to, we're, we don't have to trash talk our opponents. We're right not, I'm not going to trash talk my opponents. I like my opponents. They're all nice people. But yeah. um, that, but I do, hope to, I do hope we win. I am competitive. I just, I'm, I'm kind of over the whole, like, yeah, you guys suck. Like, I'll do it for the camera, but nah, I don't care about any other way. That's one of the most curious elements about the Schmodown is, you know, a lot of these people are film experts. They're, a lot of us are journalists. A lot of yeah. us are critics. A lot of us are, you know, writers and interviewers. Uh, generally speaking, a pretty timid lot. <laughs> yeah, we're, we, we went into we went into the arts. Yeah, <laughs> basically, or we went to the supplemental uh, and, and, avenues regarding the arts. We didn't go into like hardcore sports and competitions yeah. and really macho stuff. And yeah. here we are. At a movie trivia show that like celebrates the film, and we're expected to be like all antagonistic. And mm. some of us are good at it. Some yeah. of us follow sports, and like it's kind just, of second nature. And some of us, just, it's not in us. Just close your eyes, take a deep breath, and think about that time you argued online with that one jerk about Blade Runner. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You have to channel it. You have to get get into the method of it. A well, little it kind of works because some of us are actors. Like you have a theater, um, you have a bit of a theater background, I, so I, you I you play a cad theater, pretty well. But uh, <laughs> I never quite took to it. I, it it's right. weird because we're kind of playing ourselves. Yeah. And on some level, we are telling the world this is who we are. And whenever I had to play a bad guy, I was like, I'm not really comfortable with <laughs> it. I'm just not. Like I've never been fully. Co- and if you watch some of my old episodes when I was trying to play a heel, mm. there's a part of me that always just like couldn't do it and broke character. <laughs> and I tried to make that my character, but it never quite clicked. You are a sensitive soul. Yeah. They did a uh, they did a poll like on Facebook, like who were the greatest heels in the Shmodan history? And they listed like twenty people. Yeah. I wasn't even on the list. <laughs> I just I just I couldn't even not even back when like was a a heel for like two years yeah. did it like did I even qualify for that list? It was hilarious. You you have relatively poor taste in clothes. Yes. Your your, your singing voice is thin and reedy. <laughs> And, and you smell funny when you're wet. What was that from, man? It's Earthworm Jim. That's right. It's thin and reedy. Singing voice is thin and reedy. All right, let's do one or two more. All right, uh, here, here's a good one that's completely off topic of everything. It's just Great. from the letter C. Hello, the letter C. Hello. Uh, dear Bibbs and Whitney, uh, this summer has been a lot, and the heat has been kicking my ass. Oh, God, yes. I am miserable right now. We have we, to turn uh, the air conditioning off to do this podcast, and we are dying right now. You're lucky to have central air. We don't have central air in our apartment. I mean, it costs I, a fortune right now, but it's yeah. worth every penny. I drove out to Arcadia. Which is something you never want to do. No, uh, I was born in Arcadia, yeah. and the first thing I did was leave. <laughs> Ar- Arcadia is hot in the dead of winter, uh, and it, it's a, a very, very pla- place you don't want to drive to when you live in LA. And yeah. um, I drove out there though because a friend is lending us an air conditioner, one of those oh. big floor units that you oh, see park nice by your window with the tubes leading out. And, and it works really well. It's noisy. Great. It's noisy, but every room in Who our cares? Ha- every room in our house is you know, about as hot as the surface of mercury, and our bedroom is a nice mild seventy one. So we're just staying in there. Uh, yeah, just hunkered suck down, sucking up, suck up electricity, summer. ruining the environment, and having a nice comforting day. Yeah, I feel uh, guilty about it. Yeah, I, I pray for rain every day, and somehow when it does come, it's hot too. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm glad so, I don't live in Florida. Yeah. I, I, anywho. Uh, Florida's a nice fine place, yeah. but I've been there before and the hot rain sucks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, anywho, I wanted to send in a fun question, or hmm. should I say questions? Okay. What is your favorite flavor of popsicle? <laughs> Two. Okay. What are some underrated popsicle brands? Mm. Three. Are there any promotional or weird popsicles from the past <laughs> that will never be made again? <laughs> and number four. If you could design a popsicle to taste like any movie. <laughs> any movie? <laughs> 
What movie would you choose, and what would your popsicle taste like? <laughs> Hopefully you're staying away from the heat. Sincerely, the letter C. This is easily the this best letter the, we have ever had. This is the best letter. Thank you for this. Ever. Okay, guide, guide us through these one at a time. All right. We might call this episode Popsicle Showdown. <laughs> popsicle. Okay. What is your favorite flavor of Popsicle? Ah, that is a tough one. Red. Red. Like Red. It's not It's not strawberry. It's not raspberry. It's not cherry. You and I both know they are red. Like Red Slurpee is just like, red. Yeah. Basically, yeah. yeah. That's, that's the winner. Uh, I also like grape, but red is red. Hmm. And you gotta love the reds. Uh, this is just, this is the nostalgia vote, mm-hmm. but I'm not sure if they even still make this, but Popsicle, the brand, like mm. specifically the Popsicle brand, which, you know, not, not rich, not complicated, mm. just simple, cool thing you want to eat during yeah. the summer. They put out, a, it's like the, th- the three strangest flavors you could put together yeah. uh, in, in a single box. And they, um, this was the only way you could get any of these three flavors. There was lime. Oh, lime, lime, lime is lime my is favorite good. shave ice. Okay. You just crunch up but, some uh, ice, pour lime over it. I am happy in the summer. There was lime. There was banana. Huh. And I, I remember reading somewhere, and I don't know how true this is, uh, that banana was like one of the easiest flavors to reproduce artificially. Like, oh, like when it came to like false flavors in chemical labs, they were able to do bananas better than other fruit flavors. What I think is fascinating is that the banana flavoring we have in candy is based off of a banana that is now extinct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's, the, that's an interesting bit of trivia. The bananas you used to be able to get at the market, the ones that were super slippery and would lead to, lead to people like falling on banana peels, which you look at now and like, banana peels aren't that slippery. Like, Why like is a, that? I tried that as a kid. Yeah. It's like, I want to step on this. I want to slip like in the cartoons. They used to be, yeah. and then we farmed them to near extinction, and now we had to pick a different brand of banana, which is actually less flavorful. Mm. Uh, and we're actually running towards the end of that banana cycle as well, and people are starting to look at different kinds of bananas. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of bananas that taste like weird things. There are bananas that taste like ice cream. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Let's bring that one in. That sounds like a great banana. We'll just switch to plantains. Uh, but yeah, uh, there, there, banana, was, yeah. there was lime, banana, and root beer all in the same box. Ooh, that's a good one. I love all three of those flavors, those and flavors. they remind me of being 10. So, although there are superior popsicles in the world, mm. that's what I'm going to go with. Okay. What's the what's the next question? Uh, the ne- <laughs> question number two. Please. Um, what are some underrated popsicle brands? Excuse me while I check my freezer. <laughs> like I literally yeah, got um, an off like an, an unusual brand of popsicle like yeah. I never got this and I actually love them. I just now, to um, them popsicles you're referring specifically to the ice flavor-based treats and not specifically uh ice cream on a stick. An ice cream yes. bar is not a popsicle. No, uh, no, it is not. You yeah, need if, if it's basically made with fruit juice, fruit fruit juice and water rather yeah. than uh, than milk and cream. So I got these. They are outshine fruit bars, and oh, uh, yeah, they yeah. have like they made they have like real fruit in them, mm. um, and they're really great. I really like them a lot. They taste like actual strawberries. Mm. Uh, they're delicious. I don't know the actual brand name. I don't. Not even sure if there is a brand name. But anything you'd get from uh, the ice cream vendor's cart in a park. The guy would walk. The guy would walk by. Is you know he's clearly suffering in the sun, but you know this is his way he's making a living. And you go, he's like, hey, what do you want? It's like oh, I want that one. And you, and you bite into it. It's like how how did you reshape a pineapple to look like this? Like it, yeah. t- it tastes like pineapple. It even has like shaved bits of pineapple in there it. There you go. Yeah, but those are only that's Los Angeles only. By the way, uh, who wrote this letter again? Uh, just the letter C. C. Thank you very much mm. for giving me an excuse to poke my head in my freezer. <laughs> it's very warm right now. What's the next one? So, um, I'd, I'd say Otter Pops, but those are not underrated. Those are rated just fine. No, uh, those those everyone knows what those are good for. Yeah. That's fine. <laughs> 
Number three, are there any promotional or weird popsicles from your past that will never be made again? I honestly don't know. Hmm. There probably was. I wasn't really paying attention to the brands well, of the ice cream that I was I was uh, yeah, eating I, when I was a kid. No, you've visited ice cream trucks before, sure. right? And you got the popsicle, like the Pink Panther popsicle. It like, looks like a cartoon head. Yeah, I forgot about those. Those oh, were okay. awesome. Yeah. Those are really fun, and they always had gumball eyes or gumball nose. Yeah, really those fun. were great. I, I got one for my son recently. It was a Minion. Well, that's uh, cool. Minion, weirdly enough, not banana flavored. What was the flavor? It was lemon flavored. I would like, assume banana. Um, minions are all about bananas. I would assume banana, mm. or maybe like passion fruit or something. Because <laughs> <laughs> they're yellow. Maybe, yeah, I would, maybe, know, I would immediately banana assume banana. Variety. I actually always assume mm. they were they would be Twinkies. You like you 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 rip open <laughs> you a minion. You rip open a minion. And it's there just would just be like sponge soft, cake yeah. and cream inside. Well, that that no, makes sense to me. I, what do you I, think I, their eyes are made of? They're all bright and white I, and implausible. Yeah. I don't know. I, I picture them like a little bit more like a, a like a Frankenstuff hot dog. Like they're just sort of meat and like this like yellow yellow pus. meat. This, well, like no. the, they, they had like a core of molten cheese in the middle, and nobody liked them, and it was a terrible idea. But they were really popular. You remember those things? No Hormel, and they also stuck yes! in this chili. Uh, Hormel, yes, put those these were disgusting. You're right. Yeah, you're they're they're really right. gross. You rip open this meat, and all this cheese would come out. It's like a hot dog version of a juicy Lucy. You know what you can't find anymore? Bagel dogs. You have to make them. You, but they used to just have them. You could get them frozen, or you mm. can get them at almost anywhere that would sell hot dogs. It was just it was a hot dog, and it was surrounded in like a bagel crust, and it was really great. And they just fell out of favor. You just can't get them anymore. Well, too too much denseness, I suppose. Dense meat I guess. and dense bread. You want light bread. Yeah. Um, but I, before uh, before Hollywood got their greasy mitts all over my ice cream truck. <laughs> uh, those gumball eyes were just random things. Uh, this is a ghost. Mm. It's a blue ghost. It's called Blue Ghost. It has gumball nose. I get it. Uh, I remember uh, my sister got one called a Jumping Jiminy once. It was a frog. Oh, yeah. It's just shaped like a frog. Not a licensed character. It's oh, just yeah. a Jumping Jiminy. It's fun. I know some, some poor 43-year-old soul, somebody around my age, is out there in the world saying, I remember that right now. And that person and I, we're brothers right now. <laughs> and that's the only reason I said those things. I feel like there was one more question. Uh, well, I'm, I'm trying to think, like, something discontinued. So I'm trying to think of, like, a popsicle scandal of some kind. Something I don't remember. Was... I have no idea. I do remember that there used to be more, like, orange popsicles. And I don't think you can get them. They were, like, big sticks. Oh, they yeah, still yeah. big sticks? Absolutely. Okay, big sticks. Big sticks are thing. awesome. Okay, well, yes, I, they again, are. Those, those aren't underrated. I think everybody knows a big stick. No, I thought so, too. But, you know, I haven't been keeping up with the popsicle, you know... Popsicle Twitter, you know, I haven't really been keeping popsicle it. Twitter. I guarantee you there's a Popsicle Twitter. There's guys Twitter for everything, I yeah, suppose. Yeah, there's a hashtag um, for it all. I remember uh, there was a, a very brief fad of fruit slushes. It was a Popsicle that wouldn't... It was a little, uh, like, yogurt cup of slush. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You crush it up with a spoon and eat it that way. It was, yeah, they perfectly good way of eating something frozen and delicious. I remember Popsicle Twisters. They probably still make yes, those. Yes, I do remember Popsicle They were sort of corkscrew thing. shaped and the ads were all like kind of gross. Yeah. It's like, I don't want to eat that. That looks great. Like people, the, the kids are eating it and it looks like they're about to start drooling in every single yeah. one of those. It's like, that doesn't, that's not a good shape for a Popsicle. No. Anyway, uh, and number four. <laughs> if you could design a Popsicle to taste like any movie, mm. what movie would you choose? And what would your popsicle taste like? That is a good question. I would choose, yeah. I would make an eraser head popsicle, and it would taste like moldy cardboard and cobwebs. <laughs> it would be gray. I would I would have a step-up 3D popsicle, and it would taste like stolen hats. 
What does a stolen hat taste like? What flavor is that? Like, like a sweatband? Like yeah. Wool? <laughs> like I don't it, know. Like it tastes like actually licking a hat? Yeah, why not? But it's cold. <laughs> it's cold, so it's fine. Yeah. Um, no. I, I know when uh, when the, I, the space tea. balls, but it tastes like Pizza the Hut, so it's like frozen pizza. It's a pizza on a stick. Yeah. Would it be a, like a cold ice-based popsicle or would it just be a frozen pizza? Because that's not a popsicle, sir. No, 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 no. It would be ice-based, but it would taste <laughs> like a pizza. It would kind of look like a pizza, too. You just right. like shape it a little bit. The gumball pepperonis. Yeah. No, I, These I are all bad ideas. Here's a good idea. It, you could make a Michael Myers popsicle and it tastes like pumpkins. Like a Halloween, oh, that's a fun like one. A Halloween, Halloween pumpkin spice yeah, popsicle. But that's a good t- idea. Tie it into the Halloween movie franchise. That's a legitimately good. You just have like the face... Like at the end of like a stick or something like yeah, that. Yeah, like you, you, that's you, cool. You, you eat off the pumpkin and there's a little Michael head on the stick. See, there that makes sense. That mm-hmm. one I like. That's cool. Mm-hmm. They should have a Nightmare Before Christmas popsicles. And you have like a Jack Skellington head. Mm-hmm. And maybe oh, that could taste like pumpkin spice. Or you have like a Sally head mm-hmm. or a Mr. Oogie Boogie head that like tastes, tastes like, like kind centipedes. of centipedes. Gu- I think it tastes like gummy worms or something like that. Oh, like yeah. that kind of that kind of candy. Surely there's something in Disneyland like around. Halloween I'm sure there. They make the stuff thing, like the, that. The thing that this whole conversation and they're not popsicles. It's ice cream on a stick. But like. The one thing, when I think about Disneyland, and I've been to Disneyland uh-huh. in over 20 years. I've been to Disney World once or twice, but Disneyland... Yeah, I think it's been, been about a decade for me. It's too. been at yeah. least 20 years since I've actually been... I've been I haven't been to Disneyland since before they started retrofitting the haunted house for Halloween for Nightmare Before Christmas. That's yeah. how long it's been. I've never gone to that, and I've always wanted to, but Disneyland is expensive, damn it like 200 bucks to get in now it's i know it's nuts. huge it's ridiculous like who has the money like look, I, go, I don't go on go online go on youtube and look up uh disneyland 90s commercial and you'll see see ads saying things like dude disneyland for only 22 dollars and you'll want to cry yeah it's like when you watch a movie and you see gas for 50 cents yeah. and you're like what the fuck is the matter with yeah. you about about 20 years ago it was literally like a tenth of the price i know it's absolutely insane but um but uh, the one thing I get nostalgic for in Disneyland were the chocolate-dipped mm. Mickey Mouse ear uh, ice cream on a stick. All and, right. like, the chocolate is, like, really crunchy, and it's all around the ears. It's like magic ears. shell. Yeah, yeah, and, like, the eyes are M&Ms or something, and those were great. Yeah, I yeah. loved those yeah. so much. Th- there were more calories in just one of those bars than your average wedding reception. Listen, you're running around that park. You need those calories. <laughs> I suppose so. Why don't you get you're a on, burn? You're on your feet all day walking yeah. around. Come on. Need need something to to balance out that awful hot dog you're going to have That's later the, on. They have the worst hot dogs. They're not good hot dogs. Yeah. Come on. Amusement park food. I, I I haven't been to Disneyland for quite a while either, and, yeah. and God willing, I'll never have to go again. Because oh, you Disneyland. have a kid, you're going to Disneyland, and well, you know it. it's only a matter of time. You know what? I'm going to test that theory. Uh-huh. <laughs> then you have to. Okay, I'm going to say this right yeah, now. I'll take him to Legoland. Okay, Legoland. Yeah, I'll take fine, him to Knott's Berry Farm. If I can stay, if I can stay away from Disneyland, then I'll be. What about okay. what about Magic Mountain? You know what? By the time we're going to Magic Mountain, he's going on his own. He's going with friends. He's okay. going for like a summer right. camp or something. Right. Six Flags Magic Mountain is here in Valencia, California. Bit of a drive, it's, but not unreasonable. It's, it's actually yeah. fast. It's actually you can get to it quicker than Disneyland on a good day. Yeah. Uh, in fact, uh, 
during COVID traffic when nobody's on the road here in LA, you can get around. It's great. Yeah. You can get into Hollywood in 15 minutes. Of yeah, it is yeah, actually it's, pretty it's cool. It's really nice yeah. uh, in ter- just in terms of traffic, not because yeah. there's a pandemic on. But... No, and it's also nice that there are fewer people on the road so the air is cleaner. Yeah. Like, it's, not, it's pretty bad right now because of the heat wave, but like in mm. general, it's... There's, there's yeah. rabbits living in the field next to me now. It's know, really it's wonderful. So and the field is just like... It's overgrown. There's it's, wild it's tomatillos a, growing a, in the field. A building used to be there for a long time where they just bulldozed it and then COVID happened and they haven't had a chance to build anything on it yet. So yeah, it's like a mini like na- nature, ecosystem Yeah, now. nature has come back. It's its own biome. <laughs> it's so and, uh, Like we're seeing new bugs in our kitchen coming over from this brand new biome that's sprung up did, next to did us. Did we tell people about the heron? We, ha- we haven't mentioned the heron on the podcast. We, we okay, so I live at an apartment complex mm. and we have like, it, it's, it sounds fancy, but it's not. We have like a small fish mm. pond like in a courtyard. And... We noticed one night we were just like on a balcony and we mm. saw a heron, a big, long necked bird of prey on our rooftop. And we were like, oh, that's crazy. You never see one inland like this. And even like on the beach, they're pretty rare because they're usually a lot of people and they, mm. they know that we're predators. Um, but we saw it and then we kept seeing it and we realized it's eaten the fish. <laughs> It fact, found a new home. We, we looked up that that herons actually do eat koi. That's yeah. like they're they're known as like koi killers. Yeah. So like, and then we saw like in the courtyard this heron just like walking around, and this is beautiful dinosaur of a creature. Yeah, it's a big, big four foot tall bird. That's yeah, it was huge. huge. It was really cool. We took a couple pictures. It was awesome. <laughs> um, sadly, yeah. it had, it, probably not sadly for the fish, but yeah, sadly yeah. for us and our sightseeing, it doesn't seem to be around but, anymore. But to get back to our first tangent, oh, uh, <laughs> where get, were we? I, I was. About to say that I, uh, because COVID traffic is so light, I was able to take my son for just a drive one morning. Yeah. Just to fill the day. We had no idea what to do. Yeah. So I got on the freeway, started driving. We drove to Magic Mountain. 20 minutes. Yeah. Magic Mountain, it was, which is That's usually like a night, like at least a 90 minute drive. Yeah, just because traffic sucks. And, like, and yeah. of course the park is closed, but uh, they're taking this opportunity to do a lot of construction. So we were able to like mm. drive up right next to the, the, uh, roller coasters. Oh, we got cool. out and we wandered and I showed them to my son. Someday you're going to ride on those. Like, wow, Aww. this is really cool. That's really cool. And then some guy came up and said, you're not supposed to park there. I said, okay, fine, we'll yeah. go. But we actually, because um, I, I know I wasn't supposed to park there. I did it anyway. Cause um, I'm a rebel that way. And like, I think it was April or May, mm-hmm. Knott's Berry Farm, which obviously like a lot of amusement parks isn't making a lot of money right now. They decided to have, it's basically like a, a, a stunt. They've never done this before. They mm. decided to sell huckleberry bushes. Yeah. Huckleberry bushes or boysenberry bushes? I'm sorry, is it boysenberry? Yeah, boysenberry. Boysenberry, yeah. Because they invented it. Yes. That the Boys, actual boysenberries are a, a, a blend between blackberries and raspberries. Yeah, and Knott's Berry Farm like invented bred, that. bred them. Yeah, yeah. That, and that way for the first time. They never sold the plants before. You could buy like the berries, but you could never buy the plants before. Mm. And they decided that they were going to sell them on the roadside. And all you got to do is like you buy them online, and then you go with your number and you pick them up. And so we went to Knott's Berry Farm to pick up a boysenberry bush for our patio, so mm. that, because it's cool, and also boysenberries. And the line was ridiculous. It was like the line to get onto a roller coaster. There was like, there must have been like 200 cars, like in a line, just trying to get boysenberry bushes, which I really, you know, call me naive. I didn't think it would be that much of a draw. I was wrong. People were all about those boysenberries. Um, so that boys was Because cool. boysenberries are awesome. If- yeah. And they were selling pies as well. So we got one of those. Oh, well, really cool. yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, uh, one of my friends likes to go to Knott's Berry Farm on his birthday, and yeah. they have a, a little restaurant right there that serves fried chicken and boysenberry everything. Wow. And boysenberry pancakes, boysenberry punch. Yeah. It, it's a, a very unique flavor that is very, uh, it's very childlike and very nostalgic for a lot of people in Southern California. Yeah, because we associate it's, with Knott's yeah, Berry Farm. It's really, yeah. really sweet. That's the best popsicle, boysenberry popsicle. I don't think that I've ever had that. one, but that's a good idea. I was about to say, yeah. like... Like rich and, and heavy and thick and dark, like those Welch's grape ones, but boysenberry flavor. There you go. I like that. Yeah. That's awesome. That's the best letter we ever got. <laughs> I think, I think, we, have, I think we have to cut it off there. <laughs> uh, thank you, everybody, for writing in. If you want to write into a future episode of We've Got Mail, our email address is letters at critically acclaimed.net. Uh, please feel free to write us about whatever you want. We would love to hear from you. We would love to read your letters. We don't have time to read all of them, but we try. Mm. Uh, and uh, of course you can follow us on Twitter at Critic Acclaim I am at William Bibiani I'm at Whitney Seibold if you want more of our stuff be sure to check out our Patreon patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network uh, where you can get a ton of exclusive content in addition to uh, we put out multiple exclusive Patreon podcasts every single week mm-hmm. uh, about things ranging from Star Trek to the Academy Awards to Disney uh, commentary tracks and, and we're having a poll right now to decide on another Patreon exclusive podcast. But if you sign up right now, depending on the tier that you join in, you can get access to got dozens, if not hundreds of hours of previous podcasts. Just content just right there immediately. Uh, so thank you to all of our patrons for keeping this show going. We couldn't do it without you. Uh, thank you to everybody. If you can't sign up for that, subscribe, leave us a review, do whatever you can. We'd really appreciate it. Um, and uh, regardless, we hope that you are staying safe Sane, if you're in one of those places where we're in a heat wave right now, we hope you are staying cool. Um, hydrate. Please, hydrate. Call your family members. Make sure that everyone is taking care of themselves right now because this can be a heat wave can be real bad. Um, yeah. Real, real, real bad. Yeah. We've all seen it. Um, so thank you again. And uh, I guess that's it. Sincerely yours, Bibs and Whitney. <laughs>